Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. I've never been so proud to be British and to be part of the Olympic movement as I am on this day at this moment. Lord Sebastian Coe's rallying speech during a momentous opening ceremony for the London 2012 Olympics that famously had everything from Bex to Bradley, Bond to Bean and brilliance from Danny Boyle. Coe declared London 2012 will see the very best of us. Seven years on, those words certainly ring true. This is an anything but footy, the unashamedly Olympic and Paralympic sport-focused podcast. And this is our first summer special, remembering the highs, lows, dramas and celebrations of all things 2012. I'm John. And I'm Michael. And there were plenty of highs, lows, there was plenty of drama, and there was plenty of good stuff to remember, of course, in London 2012. We're going to recall some of our favourite memories. We're going to recall some of those medal moments. We're going to recall 17 wonderful days of competition and two ceremonies as well. An opening ceremony that really set the tone from Danny Boyle and a closing ceremony that featured, amongst others, the Kaiser Chiefs, the Spice Girls and the Who who brought the curtain down on London 2012. What a glorious summer it was. And if we miss something special to you in the next 30 minutes or so please tell us at anything but f on twitter or message us on insta or facebook so this was the third time london had staged the games no other city had reached that milestone at that point the motto was inspire a generation 204 nations took part 10,768 athletes nearly half of them were women uh, 5,992 were men 4,776 women there were 302 events in 26 sports uh, that, right across 39 disciplines and it all started on the 27th of July 2012 and ended August the 12th. That was the Olympics. The Paralympics obviously carried on a little longer, which we will talk about. The final medal table for Team GB uh, was led overall by the United States, followed by China 
and of course hosts Great Britain in third place. 65 medals in total, 29 gold, 17 silver, 19 bronze. It was quite an achievement, and as you've already said, Michael, quite the summer. But do you remember in 2005 when we won it after failing with some World Championship Athletics bid at Pickett's Lock for 1999 or something, or 2001, something like that. It was very strange. There was general pessimism before the Olympics. The transport wouldn't work. No one knew what to do with the stadium. There was huge rows about horse guards being used, and particularly Greenwich Park, where, of course, the uh, three-day eventing and and the show jumping had took place. It was just absolutely everyone was negative about it. Do you remember that, Michael? I remember the the huge negativity. I also remember, because I'm old enough, um, born, as we've often said, in an Olympic year, a Montreal Olympic year in 76, both of us. I remember Birmingham bidding. I remember Mm. Manchester's bids as well. And, you know, they weren't close, but they were never really going to get on the IOC radar. Who would have remembered Manchester 2000 in the way that we recall Sydney 2000? I remember having a discussion with my dad saying... You know, I'd love London. This is the city that I was, I was born on the edge of London. I was born in South Hertfordshire. So I was just on the edge of the M25. And I remember saying, I'd love London. Essentially, it's my home city. I'd love London to host the Olympic Games. My dad said, London will never host the Olympic Games. Son. <laughs> London is too busy. London has too many issues. London will never be able to host the Olympic Games. We'd have a better bet if we put Milton Keynes forward. And those were words that I remember my dad saying to me, and they were words that lived with me. And, you know, back in the, the early the early noughties, when there was discussion about, about London bidding for the Games, I was working in the northeast of England. I was working for a local TV channel. Um, and there was a, a video that we used to play on a loop every ad break on the TV channel. And it was the, the bid video for London 2012. You might recall it where they had guys sort of with sort of brushes and street cleaners and things thinking that they were playing hockey or doing modern pentathlon and whatever. And then brilliantly, on the first day of July 2005, I was actually laid off from that job. And on the 6th of July 2005, uh, the upside of it all was I was sat in front of my telly at home with no job, no place to go, watching all those events unfold in Singapore and watching... London, get the games. The city of London. That was the the words, wasn't it, that I don't think any of us seriously believed was going to happen. But yes... Those were the words that were announced. All the photographers were gathered in front of Paris. Everyone was expecting Paris to get the the bid. All the cameras were in Paris ready for the huge celebrations at the Eiffel Tower. At Trafalgar Square, we were, I think, probably just waiting for a little bit of an afternoon where we said, well, you know, we gave it a good go. We gave it a better go than Birmingham had and Manchester had twice. Um, But, you know, it wasn't to be for us this time. But then those words, the city of London and we had didn't we seven years to prepare I tell you what I was in Trafalgar Square when it was announced and Kelly Holmes jumped higher than probably Dalton Grant who was our best high jumper at that point in the air Um, she was absolutely beside herself I think Danny Crates the Paralympian was there Steve Cram I think might have been there uh, uh, as well and the noise in Trafalgar Square I think I kissed people and I was there working I actually kissed the person next to me because as you say it was so unexpected and and those celebrations in Singapore and we must say the late Tessa Jowell Dame Tessa Jowell was instrumental in getting 
Tony Blair, whatever you think about him, but you know that prime minister to back the government's bid and te- and, and Tessa Jow's bid with Ken Livingstone again, whoever, whatever you think about him, um, you know they had to come together and they had to support this bid. And I'll always remember Lord Coe, who was brought in after a few years. Uh, you mentioned seven years to plan it. He was brought in after a few years where you know the planning wasn't going well. It was led by I think Barbara, Barbara Kasani. She'd run yeah. an airline, hadn't she? Yeah, go. Go, it was called, and frankly, she needed to, and and she did, and 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 Sebco came in, and I remember him saying to me so many times when I interviewed him, you know, uh, when they when they when they looked at the Olympic Park, and and Ken Livingstone had, uh, had said, you know, we need somewhere to regenerate a part of London, which was basically a bunch of fridges. It was a mound full of of fridges, as Sebco always did, always get. yeah, um, and that and and but you know there was a lot of controversy about people being moved. There was a famous the foreman fr- fish factory that needed to get moved uh, and had to get moved uh, to make way for for the Olympic Stadium. So I I, I do remember, you know, the elation of winning it Obviously, the next day, July 7th, totally destroyed everything that, you know, we'd, we'd been talking about and planning because of the, the terrorist attack in London that, that, that killed 52 people. And that obviously added a huge then security cost to London 2012 and rightly so uh, as well. Um, but then, you know, the, 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 the seven years of, of planning and it, 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 even to the point of I, I kind of started my role of Olympic correspondent in January 2012. And things didn't really pan out brilliantly until literally the moment that James Bond and the Queen appeared jumping out of that plane. Because do you remember the ticketing shambles? Yeah. Um, you know, G4S. G4S, the truth. And that was literally days. That, that was days. Jeremy Hunt, the culture secretary at the time. Dropped his um, bell. Had- uh, he, he dropped his bell, but he had to go cap in hand to the MOD and say, we need the army to come in and, and manage the security um, and, and, and manage the bag searches. And that was literally two weeks before before the Olympics started on, the, on that July 27th. But uh, a particular memory for me, um, and I'm sure you have one in the build up to it, was there was a couple of days in that week. So Friday, the 27th of July was the opening ceremony. Uh, the um, two weeks before that, or probably no, it was about six weeks before that, wasn't it? When the torch landed, yeah. Um, so they they, they lit they lit the flame and they brought the torch back to Cornwall, and I drove down there to cover it. And I was in a place called RNAS Cold Rose, um, which was an airfield and a search and rescue place. Never been there in a. It was the Navy, <laughs> I think. I was in a field with lots of other media, and David Beckham came along with Princess Anne, Sophie Rayworth, who who we know from uh, <laughs> from our time, Michael as well. And you know, and and you just it was. It was one of those moments, and I've, I've gone back and I've read a, a, a diary piece that I wrote uh, during the time, Michael, and I said, quote, if this is what the games will be like, it will be crazy, it will be brilliant. And that night was was madness, and it, and it totally was, and the, the country got it. And I think the torch really, it, not, not to coin a phrase, but kind of lit up the Olympics for the rest of the country. And did you feel that while you were kind of, you know, in other parts of, because uh, I was in London, but you, other parts of the UK? I was in the northeast where I live, and at the time I was I was living in a village in in northeast England called Norton, and it didn't quite come past my front door. It went to Billingham, which is the the next town to where I lived, and I, I literally was able to push my daughter, who at the time was one and a bit, 
and my mm. wife was heavily pregnant with with our second child, and I was literally able to walk with my heavily pregnant wife and my daughter one and a bit in her pushchair, and I walked to Billingham, and we saw those buses and all the advertising people and yep. everything else. We remember that we saw all that go past, and then then we saw the train, and, and a guy I know, a friend of mine, um, who's actually chairman of, of the Disabled Supporters Club at Middlesbrough Football Club, he, he had the honour, if you like, of carrying the torch from, from Teesside into Yorkshire. Um, he carried it across the border at the time. So, you know, to, to have a friend of mine, a, a guy that I knew, a guy called Paddy Cronesbury, carry that torch and, and to see it, as I said, not quite go past my front door, but, but to be able to walk to go and see that torch. Yeah, as you say, to, to coin that phrase, lit up the enthusiasm for the games. I think just prior to that, we'd all gone through that point where we'd thought... We'll all get to see a bit of the Olympics. It will touch each and every one of us. And we'd all bid for tickets and we'd all gone into the ballot and none of us had got anything. I put in for thousands of pounds worth of tickets in the ballot. If they'd all come off, I'd literally no idea how I was going to pay for them. I remember it was the first time I ever got into Twitter, really. And that was to try and um, get into trying to buy the tickets overseas sellers were advertising themselves on twitter to try and buy tickets and that's the first time i remember really using that social media platform to try and get tickets um, to try and go and see some of the olympics Yes, it was a whole issue, wasn't it, the tickets? I think they, they finally managed to get them sorted out and people did get to certain number of events that they wanted to, but it certainly wasn't uh, plain sailing in any way. And you're right about Twitter as well. Um, that, 2012 was when I first discovered it as well. I was like, OK, I need to I need to be on this thing. And uh, and boy, has it changed people's lives, uh, maybe in a good way. Not um, always <laughs> the best, I should no, point quite. out. <laughs> ever, ever, ever since. And then just before we start getting into the games, because you you know, that's what people want to hear about. Um, I went to Cardiff for the opening football match where Team GB, the women were in action. And that was a uh, an amazing thing two days before the opening ceremony. And then I came back and the following night, it was the Hyde Park party where the Olympic torch was. And I believe Boris Johnson, who was then mayor of London, uh, was there that night as well. And um, broadcasting from Hyde Park with 100,000 people was certainly a, a, a spectacle. And that opening ceremony, I mean, you've watched it recently, Michael. Yeah, it's have, still yeah. magical. It's still magical. Yeah, it's funny because I was actually on the radio that night. As I said, I'd, I'd got laid off from my, my job in, in 2005. So so by the time 2012 had come around seven years later, I was a completely freelance um, broadcaster. And I remember as a freelance broadcaster watching the Beijing Olympics at home thinking, next time, 2012 London, I, I've, I've got to get involved somehow. And, and I was fortunate that, that one of the people I was working for was a radio station in Yorkshire said yep we want you to to do some Olympic stuff for us so the night of the opening ceremony I was actually presenting on the radio but the main thing I was presenting on the radio that night was a pre-season football match between Leeds and Torquay Um, and that that was the first three and a half hours of the program and then basically the radio station had said to me you know you've got carte blanche stay on the radio just keep talking about the Olympics the opening ceremony describe it as best you can I was sat in a studio in Leeds at the time I had no media guide I hadn't been to any 
any rehearsal. And basically what I did was I had Hugh Edwards and Hazel Irvin, who were obviously the commentators on the BBC with Trevor Nelson, had them in one ear, had the television on in the studio. I was, I was scrolling the online feed and I was basically just trying to regurgitate as much of what they were saying and describe what I could see. Um, and I was just listing countries and a friend of mine, she said she was listening that night. She said, well, I just presumed you were there. I, I never, I never imagined you weren't. Um, and I have to say, actually, when I look back at that, that opening ceremony, and I, you revisited your diary recently. I revisited a, a radio interview I did, and I, I can't remember the exact occasion. It was a year to go or 500 days to go or whatever. And, and they were talking about the hopes or my hopes for what I thought would be in the opening ceremony. So this is a good year, year and a bit out from the actual ceremony. Mm. And, and I, I listened to it again recently. And I said in this, before I knew anything that would actually happen, I said the opening ceremony should involve James Bond, choirs from the nations, should become a cross between Glastonbury, Notting Hill Carnival, Trooping the Colour and the Proms, and should finish with Paul McCartney. And actually, I got quite a bit of it right. <laughs> and when I listened back... Did Danny to that, Boyle talk to you? Uh, well, I, I don't know whether he heard it or what, but actually, when I listened back to that, that interview, I suggested that at the start of the opening ceremony, they should have a big countdown, and then all of the stadium should go dark, and then there should be one spotlight in the middle of the stadium... And it should be Judy Dench as M from the Bond films to Daniel Craig as James Bond going, cup of tea, Mr. Bond? Because that's what everyone thinks when they think of Great Britain Britain. and they think of London. I actually think Danny Boyle maybe took my Bond idea and did it a little bit better with the whole Queen jumping out, jumping out of the helicopter. I remember the sun led with that on April the 1st that Bond and the Queen would be in the opening ceremony for the Olympics and, and all of us ran it as it was an April Fool. And no, mm. and I think we kind of believed it, but no one could ever prove that it was ever going to happen. And, and I have to say... That, that moment, and that moment when, they, when it happened, it was just... It was, I mean, you, you say you were where you were working. Um, again, it, it's, it's difficult. There were so many journalists who were in that stadium who would have a view of it. There were so many people, games makers, who would have been there, people who were part of the ceremony. But... I was, a, like you, Michael, was a, a non-rights holder, as it's called in Olympic uh, parlance, uh, which means we can cover the games, but we can't broadcast from the actual location that these things are happening. And we've talked about it a little bit before on Anything But Footy. So I was in a tent watching <laughs> the pictures, as you were, um, on a television, but I was on a, in a tent on top of the John Lewis car park at Westfield in Stratford, where I spent the next, uh, as you said, 17 days broadcasting from the Olympics and reporting everything everything that happened as you know as i saw it and i i saw every gold medal won and i saw everything but was i in the stadium reporting on it no because that's what we weren't allowed to do that we had to broadcast it from a slightly different location but i tell you what those fireworks that when they went off at the end after macca or yeah it was after macca yeah i mean london shook and and actually that was a, a, a it was my indication to go i'm going home now because it was it was gone midnight it was um and I had to get a Thameslink train home, which, as you well know, uh, is, is, a pain, is a painful experience on the best of times. Um, and it, but those fireworks really set it off, I thought. And and it was it was an ama- it was an amazing night, and it just caught yeah. everything. And the NHS thing, I think, is worth highlighting as well. That's yeah, do you know a, what? A special moment. I still watch the opening ceremony sometimes with, with my daughter, and and that is the bit 
um she's now eight years of age um my daughter that is the bit that is her favorite the whole nhs great ormond street hospital sequence um i mean she loves mr bean she loves the industrial revolution and the way the the rings were forged but it is that sequence with, with jk rowling and others that she still talks about i've got to say when i look back at that opening series my favorite moment's a bit of a weird one and actually I don't know what I will say because I've brought it up now, but it's it's that aerial shot of the stadium just before it starts. So the presenters have done their bit. Gary and Gabby and Claire have finished in the studio and the commentators haven't started and they cut to that aerial shot of the stadium before we go into the opening sequence with the whole river and everything. And there's that just that little bit of buzz, that little hum in the air, that genuine fizzle of excitement and at that point i think to myself you know what anything's possible trevor nelson might have a good commentary tonight anything anything could happen this evening and i think that's my my, my favorite moment when i look back at it all i loved it it was 2012 8 12 minutes past eight when the red arrows uh, flew across look we've talked for nearly 20 minutes <laughs> on the uh, not before even got the Exactly on the, on the, on the, the the forerunner, but it was seven years of build up, and I think it's important that we we look at that. We will as we continue this anything but footy London 2012 special uh, for this summer. We will look at the legacy of the Olympics and whether we've delivered to inspire a generation, as uh, Lord Coe said uh, that we would. But let's get on to the sporting action because it was, as you rightly said, Michael, 17 days of of, of marvelous entertainment. But it didn't start no, off slow greatly start. well, did it? Slow start. Day two was meant to be Mark Cavendish's day. We were, were all expecting, yep. weren't we? Mark Cavendish at that point, he'd never won an Olympic medal before. In fact, he, he had to wait and win that silver medal in, in Rio, as, as you and I recall, to, to finally get his hands on an Olympic medal. But it was meant to be Mark Cavendish, Cavendish's day. It was meant to be the men's road race. It was finishing in the centre of London. There were huge well, it was Wiggins. Crowds. Wiggins had won the Tour de, Tour de France, hadn't yep. they? And there were huge crowds because, obviously, it was an event that most people could go and see for yeah. free. Yes, the finish was ticketed, but if you watch the scenes on Box Hill, you know, you looked at those scenes and you thought, you know, this this might this might actually be okay. London might might actually pull this off. But, you know, Mark Cavendish didn't, didn't win it. He trailed him way down the field in the end. I don't even recall who won the gold no. medal that day. Um, but it, it wasn't the golden start that it was meant to be. I was still actually at home watching all of that on TV. I didn't come down to London until till the next day when, when Great Britain did finally get on the medal table with, with Lizzie Armitstead, who no one had been speaking about, winning in the women's road race, a silver medal from Otley. And for me, covering it for a radio station from Yorkshire, <laughs> it was great, of course, because we had a Yorkshire medal on the table. I remember going to see Team GB with my dad at, at football. Uh, at Wembley Stadium that day as well. So, you know, I, I finally arrived at the Olympics, if you like, having having sat through the opening ceremony half-covering Torquay Leeds and then <laughs> being disappointed with Mark Cavendish. I finally arrived at the Olympics, I think, with, with Lizzie Armitstead and Britain in the football. Yeah, and Rebecca Adlington won a bronze uh, in on that day as well in the in the swimming pool and and who would have thought apart from Michael Jameson that she would be the only other swimmer uh, to win another medal when she won bronze later on in the games as well that the, the the British swimming team didn't have a great uh, no. London London 2012 but I, I remember that those early days um, again from my, with my kind of news hat on the empty seats because we'd had all this ticketing fiasco where people were like well I can't get a ticket and then you watched it on telly as you did. And there were loads of empty seats. Well, I have to say, and I put my hand up and confess here, that there's a reason 
that two seats were empty during the morning session of the Outrageous. Monday swimming. Um, and that is because I actually had, had bought, I think, tickets, um, two tickets uh, through an overseas seller. And I decided to take my mum to the swimming on the Monday morning. So I think we're at day four, if you include the opening ceremony. It was my first visit ever to the park. And, and I lost the tickets en route. <laughs> you lost them? I lost them. Um, so we got to the park, didn't have the tickets. So we then had to go to Did a Did the port- army... Did the army not let you in? No. So we had to go to a porter cabin to try and find them, which was a really, really long walk. Um, We finally then did get into the park, at which point my mum tripped over, fell over, uh, cut her knee and needed some first aid care. So we missed the entire session. And basically we got into the aquatic centre. And you recall the two big wings of the aquatic centre. We were right up high. And we got in as everyone else was leaving. And we literally got to the top, took a photo of each other and got kicked out. Didn't actually see anyone swimming. So so I confess two of those empty seats were out on on day four, the first Monday. But, of course, officially they were the VIP seats and the IOC, as we well know, and if you were in London in the build-up, you knew they had special Olympic lanes uh, where they were driven in their fast cars uh, and the rest of London had to, had to suffer, although, frankly, no one was interested by the time the game started. But, again, those empty seats, it was... It was and, and they changed it, actually. You know, London started giving it to uh, volunteers, as I said, games makers or the army, uh, or reselling those seats, and it became a thing every day. I remember going to a press conference in the, in the media centre every day and it was like yep you know we've sorted out we've released more tickets and more things have become available and that kind of carried on in Rio so hopefully the IOC have kind of learned and organising committees as, as we progress and I think Paris you know will be the next European one and, and, and you can imagine anyone who loved London will be wanting to go to Paris um, I think they'll need to make sure that they, they have more tickets available during the days um, and not having those empty seats uh, going forward so it was July 31st uh, Michael you know yeah, four or five days on still no gold medal nope. and, the, and, the, and the big story I, th- I believe it might have been a Sunday night no it might have been a monday night or a tuesday night zara phillips won (laughs) team silver in the uh in the three-day eventing and it was the first team medal since bizarrely her dad uh in 1972 in the three-day eventing and that was a that was a big story or we thought it was going to be a big story it was for that night it was, and, and actually I was feeling really rough that day. I felt really ill. And as I heard news of that medal, I was actually sat in the medical centre of London 2012. After your mum and then you. <laughs> yeah, I was feeling really ill. And, and you know I love a medical centre during a major games because you did see me in a wheelchair, I think, during Glasgow, Glasgow. 2014 <laughs> after, after getting a monumental blister on my foot, um, which actually nearly made one of the Scottish judokas physically sick. But anyway, that's for another story. So I was feeling feeling ill I was in the medical center and I'd just been diagnosed with hand foot and mouth disease which is as someone with with young a young boy you'll know it is prevalent amongst young children something I'd have clearly caught off my daughter and I was waiting to get my prescription thinking I I simply can't go back and start shaking hands with the the British (laughs) Olympic team I'll spread hand foot and mouth disease but I got this message saying eventing team silver press conference it's on in in 40 minutes and as I said, I was covering the games for Yorkshire. There was a North Allerton uh, rider, Nicola Wilson. And I was like, well, I've got to go back and get an interview with, with Nicola Wilson. And I can remember Nicola Wilson, Mary King, Christina Cook, William Fox Pitt, and the aforementioned Zara Phillips came out. 
And we were all told at Team GB House, which is where these press conferences were held for the, the likes of you and I who weren't the BBC or NBC or, or the rights holders. This is the, the kind of secondary press conferences, if you like. We were all told, whatever we did, we can ask about the event, winning the medal, but please don't ask Zara Phillips about her connections to the royal family, being the Queen's granddaughter, of course. Question one. Zara, have you had any message from your grandmother about today? <laughs> Not from me, I should point out. Question two. Zara, you got your medal from your mother, uh, the Queen's daughter. Has the Queen's daughter, or indeed the Queen, said anything to you about winning the medal? At which point, basically, William Fox Pitt said, you know what? We've had enough. They, they'd done a load of media, of course, by this point, and they pretty much walked out of the press conference, and with it, all the journalists walked out as well, and I hung about actually, and and the 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 the, the team re-emerged after a lot of the the media had gone, and I, I grabbed Nicola Wilson for an interview, um, explaining that it was for the people of Yorkshire, and she was from North Allerton, and you know we talked for five minutes, she was very happy to do it, and then I just saw Zara Phillips sat there, I thought, well, now or never, why not? And and she was lovely she was fantastic we we did yeah. a great interview about winning the silver medal and what it meant to her and and what it meant f- following as you said in her family's footsteps with her mother as well and there was there was none of that that i mean i was careful in the the way i phrased my questions of course but but of course we all wanted a line about the fact that queen's granddaughter had won a medal at, at london 2012 but i remember leaving that that day thinking despite my hand foot and mouth disease i've got a couple of decent <laughs> interviews in the bag here and 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 you're absolutely right. And I was working alongside you, obviously, for a different radio station at, at the time. And this was the big story. It was like, well, if I don't get an interview with Zara Phillips, my boss is going to turn around to me to go, why am I spending all this money with you mm. jollying, as uh, a lot of people thought it was, at the, at the at the Olympics? And you're right. We 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 managed to get an interview with her. And I I also did an interview with her. And she was she was lovely. And going back in my diary, I, I put that you know that she didn't they didn't want to do any interviews, but they did do uh, some radio interviews afterwards and, did. and we were we were lucky to, to to get that and that was really the big story at the time uh this is an anything but footy special london 2012 for the summer of 2019 seven years on we will talk about the legacy uh, and a certain mayor of london at the time uh, boris johnson before the end of this podcast but we're we're a half an hour in and we're we're not quite through uh, four days of the olympics so bear with us uh, and stick with us uh, <laughs> on this anything but footy special Quick footnote to the Zara Phillips thing, by the way. The following morning, I was going into Team GB house uh, to interview Sarah Barrow, who was a diver who dived with with Tonya Couch. And I was arriving about eight o'clock in the morning, and the medalists have to go through this this huge long process of interviews certainly the following morning they have to do the rounds of the breakfast tv studios and zara phillips was coming out of team gb house as i was going in at which point i went "Mm, me zara you look mm -mm, knackered um and it was um i don't know why the words came out my mouth i i swore twice at the queen's granddaughter um and um i thought oh my god i'm going to the tower I'm going to the tower for this. And Zara went, do you know what? We are. We've been up since four o'clock. Uh, we've hardly slept. I am knackered and I am tired. And she swore twice back at me. Uh, and just a fi- final little bit about that was 
As I said, I went in to see Sarah Barrow, the diver, and her and Tanya Couch were offered return tickets to anywhere uh, by British Airways to do a personal appearance um, that day, having finished their competition. And like, yeah, yeah, whatever, we'll do that. And I was thinking, brilliant, return tickets to anywhere from British Airways. Tanya Couch thought they meant train tickets. She didn't, re- she didn't realise she could have gone to Auckland or Sydney or Los Angeles with it. But, but yes, they toddled off after my interviews to go and do their personal appearance. And hopefully they went somewhere nice. So August the 1st, 2012, Great Britain, and we've talked about the medals. Uh, a reminder that we won 65 in total, including 29 golds. August the 1st was the first gold that we won, and what a gold it was. It was Helen Glover and Heather Stanning, the first women rowing gold for Britain as well in, in the history of that sport. And I remember, again, covering that from the car park, um, <laughs> overlooking the Olympic Park, and it was just before... I was watching the race and it was just before the top of the hour. I believe it might have been midday. And I can remember phoning the newsroom going, we're going to win a gold. We're going to go win a gold. Because we knew that Glover and Stanley, they were unbeaten. Uh, and they, they carried that on really until Rio as well, where they defended their title. They were unbeaten. We knew that they were going to get a gold. This was more than we thought Mark Cavendish might win a gold on the first day. This we knew was a, was a, was a dead on. cert. It was nailed Yeah, on. exactly. And... And I remember phoning and saying, I'm going to have to do a live into the news bulletin. And of course, it became the lead story because they won the gold straight away. And it was like our Team GB's first gold. And I can remember coming on the radio and literally, not screaming because that would be unprofessional. But it was it was one of my it was one of my highlights. Yeah. One of the highlights of the Olympics, being able to tell, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people that Team GB had won their first gold of the London 2012 Olympics and it, and, and, it, and fully deserved from Glover and Stanning, who we obviously met and interviewed later on uh, as well. And of course, as as per usual with London buses, the gold continued uh, from that point on. And Wiggins stormed the time trial to become the most decorated Olympian with f- his fourth gold and seventh medal uh, of, uh, of his career. And this guy had spread the cult of cycling. And there, yeah. there is a picture of him sitting on a throne <laughs> at um, Hampton, Court. Hampton Court, which yep. I don't think will ever be rivaled and I, um, in Olympic history. I wasn't at Hampton Court that day because um, my dad had got lucky with a couple of tickets for uh, the hockey. So I was taking a couple of hours out of my reporting duties and I'd gone to see Team GB in the hockey. And from our position, we're at the top of the, the stands in the Lee Valley Park. We could see the big screens. We could see what was going on with Bradley Wiggins. And we weren't the only ones, obviously, that could see. And suddenly this this noise, this wall of noise started dripping down the terraces, if you like. And it was people singing the national anthem because we were watching Bradley Wiggins. We were seeing him at Hampton Court on the throne. And the national anthem was being sung by the crowd as word got around. They'd followed up that rowing gold with another gold in the cycling hour. And you could see, actually, that the I think it was the men's hockey team. It was definitely Great Britain. And they were they were looking around going, what what is going on here? Why have we got thousands of people singing God Save the Queen? And it was all because, as well as watching the hockey, we were following in that multi-screen way that we were in, in 2012 and looking at the big screens in the park, we were following that as well. And yeah, yeah. Bradley Wiggins had won the second gold. And and it, it really did kind of snowball from that point on. As I said, we've, we've talked about how many Team GB won, but Super Saturday obviously came along on the, on the, the second Saturday of the Games, Michael. Six golds, three in 45 minutes in the Olympic Stadium. The greatest sportist day, sporting day 
in British history. I, I, and I had this conversation quite recently because obviously with the Cricket, Cricket. World Cup, yep. with w- what happened at Lords, obviously I, I wasn't around for the World Cup in 66. Rugby I think team won- in 2003, in 2003, Johnny Wilkinson yeah. goes close. But, but I still think that Super Saturday, because we won some rowing golds um, in, in, in that, I just think... <laughs> some the, rowing golds. Um, <laughs> I, the men's I think score. Ben, Super Saturday for me was very important from a Yorkshire point of view, because aside <laughs> from, from Jessica Ennis, those some rowing golds included North Yorkshire's Cat Copeland and uh, yes. Hepton's Andrew Triggs-Hodge in, in the Coxes Four. And I'd, I'd actually come home um, from the games on the Friday, because as I mentioned, my wife was heavily pregnant um, during London 2012. So the the agreement was that I, I would come home for the Friday night and and the Saturday night. And in fact, I got home on the Friday night and I saw the men's team pursuit cyclist win gold, which included another yeah. Yorkshireman, Ed Clancy. And I had to jump on the radio in my spare bedroom into the Sport at Six programme. So I've just watched Ed Clancy. I said, tomorrow we've got Jessica Ennis in the heptathlon. We've got Kat Copeland, Andrew Triggs-Hodge. We could win three golds for Yorkshire tomorrow. And I uttered these words, if Yorkshire was a country. And then I mentioned it would be higher than Japan, Australia, whatever, in the uh, in the medal table. And it was a phrase that, that caught on, on on social media. So, um, yeah, halfway through kind of Super Saturday, we'd seen the rowing goals. We'd seen Laura Trott, Danny King and yeah. Joe Rousel win. Uh, we had Jessica Ennis. I think she won the, the first gold of the night on Super Saturday. She'd had an amazing two days of competition. And we were watching Mo Farah, who I think brought the curtain down. We'd seen Greg Rutherford, at which point my wife said, you've got to go back to London, haven't you? <laughs> and yes, yes, I, I'm leaving you with a one-year-old and your huge belly. I'm back to the Olympics. But, but those 45 minutes, I, I think you could argue the Cricket World Cup, 45 minutes would be well up there and probably ahead of the Rugby World Cup. Yep. <laughs> the extra time of 66, I think it was is debatable. But I, I'm just not sure we're ever going to get quite a sporting day in, you know, in the stadium that had so much rankles about where, what they were going to do with it, who was going to be ending up in it. And we'll talk about that before the end of this uh, London 2012, anything but fully special. But it, I, I just think Ennis Hill, Rutherford... Mo Farah. It's going to be the thing that we will continue to talk about, about London 2012, for the rest of eternity. It, it was a great British day, and I, I'm, and I think that's quite important. You talk about 66, you talk about 2003, you talk about 2019. They're English days, aren't they? It, it's England. I'm, I'm married yeah. to a woman yeah, from, from Glasgow. She, she has literally no interest in what happened in in 1966, 2003, or indeed at the cricket in 2019. But she does talk about London 2012 and Super Saturday. It was was a day that resonated from Land's End, where that that flame first arrived, to John O'Groats and beyond. It it resonated Mm. around the world. You know, the names that day that won medals from, you know, and, and what we talk about, diversity we talked about diversity in the ceremonies for example but the diversity of that day from mo farah to jessica ennis to to greg rutherford we talked about those rowers and we named them we talked about the cyclists as well it was just such an inclusive day wasn't it it was just an amazing inclusive 12 15 hours of sport and it was an inclusive 15 hours 12 hours of sport for for great britain and all four corners of the nation 
Um, three other memories that I'm going to highlight before we uh, talk about the Paralympics, um, because that was, again, a, a great two weeks uh, of London's history. Um, the cyclists. So as I've mentioned, I spent most of my time uh, in a car park covering <laughs> the Olympics. But because the velodrome was right next to it, I did manage to go into that uh, venue and watch some sport while not broadcasting every hour. Um, it was an amazing atmosphere and eight golds, eight British golds. The emergence of Laura Trott, obviously now Laura Kenny. Um, as a 19-year-old, she's going to be, you know, or she's already the most successful British female Olympian. Um, that will continue, um, um, no doubt, in Tokyo. And and that velodrome, the tickets were hot stuff. The cycling was hotter. It was, and, and frankly, the venue was boiling. Um, it was a, an incredible place to be. So that is one of my highlights and, and made sure when I went to Rio, I spent more time in the velodrome than I actually did at London. Um, Andy Murray winning at Wimbledon, so the yep. tennis gold medal at Wimbledon. Anna Silva. Literally, uh, Anna Silva, but literally weeks after bursting into tears after losing to Federer on the same court at centre court in the Wimbledon final. That made Andy Murray the British hero because before that he was seen as Scottish when he lost to all the English people, uh, but he became the British hero at that point for me and for, well, not just for me because I was a fan of him before that, but for everybody, that was the moment that Andy Murray became Sir Andy Murray in a lot of people's eyes. That was incredible. And actually Tom Daly jumping into the pool after winning a bronze medal in the diving with the rest of his team. That was important. It wasn't just him. His whole team was so delighted for him a year after losing his dad. I mean, we've talked about Tom Daly on anything but footy so many times. That was a moment yeah. that, that, that lives long in the in the memory. And, and, and for me, you know, they were the three other really special moments of London 2012 that I really wanted to mention. And I... To add to that roundup, would, would totally agree with you on Tom Daly. There were two medals for me um, that were the highlights of the games, and Tom Daly's bronze was one of them. First individual diving medal at an Olympics for a Briton since 1960. He was a European champion at 13. He went to Beijing, the Olympics at 14. He was a world champion at 15, and an Olympic bronze medal at 18. His bronze medal for me, and has really set the tone, I think, for what the likes of Jack Law and, and Chris Mears yeah. and others are doing now. The other one I, I'd like to mention was Beth Tweddle, her bronze medal, because I, yeah. I do believe that, that Beth Tweddle um, has really set the gymnastics program up for, for Team GB, and I think the likes of of Max Whitlock and Niall Wilson, um, the Downey sisters and others are benefiting now from from the hard yards that Beth Treadle put in. And I think for her to win a bronze medal, an ancient age for a gymnast in actual fact at London 2012, <laughs> was a huge achievement. Um, Nicola Adams um, winning um, a gold medal um, for Leeds in, in the boxing. I remember doing a very brief interview with her late that night, but I was very grateful to the Team GB press office to, to get me a couple of minutes with Nicola Adams like you I would have had a boss on on my phone going why didn't you get the interview with, with <laughs> Nicola Adams and I remember and you know we talked didn't we about the tickets and the lottery of going for the tickets my friend and I we said whatever tickets we get we'll share um, I got tickets to the handball he got tickets to the men's 100 meters final um, so seeing Usain Bolt yeah. in that stadium on that Sunday night and then having to rush to that Andy Murray press conference and interview Andy Murray and Laura Robson that you mentioned after the, the gold and the, the silver medal. But seeing Usain Bolt in that stadium, you know, you talk about, you know, people like Michael Phelps, people like David Radisha. We, we've been very British yep. focused in our, in our review, but let's mention people like David. 
David Radisha, Michael Phelps, and of course Usain Bolt. If Usain Bolt hadn't won the 100 metres in London in 2012, it wouldn't have been quite the same event. So for him to do it and then back it up, of course, in the 200 metres, and that was actually the night of the handball, so we got to watch it on the big screen in the, in the <laughs> park, and uh, relays, of course, as well. Medals came there um, for him at the time, of course, as well. So, you know, those are just a, a couple of other things I would like to mention. Really well said. This is an Anything But Footy, the unashamedly Olympic and Paralympic sport-focused podcast, and this is our first summer special, uh, remembering the highs, lows, dramas and celebrations of all things 2012. Anthony Joshua won the last Team GB gold on the final day, the 29th um, gold medal. Uh, the closing ceremony was dreadful. Uh, Michael's just watched it. <laughs> but I, can't be- I can't believe you've watched it again. I, I the, have, the Spice um, Girls were horrific. The, the Spice Girls, if, if they found a note, it wasn't on the DVD. <laughs> Um, uh, I, I just, yeah, I think dreadful's sort of overplaying. It wasn't as good as the the opening ceremony, and but it I wasn't think, supposed to be. It wasn't no, supposed to be. It was and, supposed and to be the, a party. The but. sound quality, I think, when you watch it back and probably watched it live on the night, didn't help. I didn't think the sound quality did much for the likes of Suggs, um, the Kaiser Chiefs, but. George Michael choosing the opportunity of that huge global audience to promote his brand new single um, was a bit of an odd one as well. But, yeah, I have just watched it again. Um, And seven years on wasn't as bad as I I recalled it at the time. And I remember watching it, and I watched it on a little monitor. And I shed a tear, I'll be honest with you. Um, London 2012, it wasn't over because we had the Paralympics. And actually, I had tickets for the closing ceremony of the Paralympics with Rihanna and and Coldplay. And that was brilliant. brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And to have been in the stadium that night was amazing. But the closing ceremony, I did did shed a little tear that night. And not not because it was bad, not because of the way the Spice Girls sounded, but just because it it was such a huge build-up, wasn't it? And, And not just the seven years and the 17 days but but everything that had gone on before that and it was just just so wonderful to think you know London did it and and did it right as Lord Coe said but it was ready to do it all again two weeks later and the the Paralympics gave people more chance to see sport that that, that people hadn't had the chance with with the ticket fiasco for the Olympics and like Team GB Para GB came behind China and Russia in third place winning 120 medals in total 34 gold 43 silver and 43 bronze Sarah Story and David Weir won four golds each and the Werewolf was incredible. Dame Sarah Story and both of them are still going on uh, now. Rio obviously didn't work out for David Weir, but he was uh, absolutely incredible on the track uh, um, in the Olympic Stadium. And for Super Saturday, it was Thursday, the 6th of September. Thriller Thursday, as I <laughs> called it. Um, for, for, for Mo, Jess and Greg, read David Weir, Hannah Krokoft, Johnny Peacock, one of my greatest memories of the Paralympics is being in the stadium. And, and this was what was different for me because we were broadcasting as much as we had for the Olympics, but I didn't necessarily have to do it live. And it meant that I could go and watch the sport and then run outside and record um, for the news bulletins. And being there and seeing Johnny Peacock with his name being cheered and chanted, Peacock, Peacock, in the Olympic Stadium, 
I mean, he must have, you know, spine tingling memories of that. Anyone who was there would have as well. It was a a thrilling Thursday, uh, as I say. And it was just another two weeks where London sparkled in the sunshine and sport. Yeah. And and you know that, uh, I mean, I'm I'm sort of name dropping here, but I, I know Hannah Cockcroft pretty well. Got to know Hannah Cockcroft pretty well since that summer of 2012. And, you know, if, if David Bowie's heroes comes on the radio or, you know, is is on a smart speaker somewhere, anywhere in, in her presence, she must just have a little, as you say, tingle uh, down the spine there. Because, you know, when, when they came in on that opening ceremony of the Paralympics with, with David Bowie's heroes and what unfolded for the likes of Hannah Cockcroft, who, you know, was pretty much unknown, I would say, to the general public. And is, is now a household name, is now someone that, you know, is quite rightly on the stage at Sports Personality of the Year from, from time to time as, as a contender for those awards. You know, when, when she hears that piece of music, when she looks back at those images of the Paralympics, I think I think London, if, if there was a, a wonderful legacy from London and the Paralympics, it was that it, it took the Paralympics to, to not just the next step, it took it up three flights of stairs didn't it really in terms of the way the way it was presented um it wasn't seen as a secondary event it wasn't seen as an add-on to an olympic games it wasn't an equal event and you know we we got fantastic coverage of it that the coverage of the paralympics in tokyo will be even bigger and better as far as the media is concerned television Mm -hmm. is concerned but i really do think there was a step change as far as paralympic sport was concerned with london 2012 and I think we need to prioritise Channel 4 because of that. Yeah, because, oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. They, they took the rights and they took a risk and they took the rights and they've carried it on and supported it ever since. But they they came up with, you know, the way to celebrate sport. And it is sport and it is what everybody was cheering about. And they just nailed it. And the Paralympians, the British Paralympians in particular, nailed it. But, you know, it wasn't just a British thing. Oscar Pistorius that night was huge. You know, Mm. those games, I mean, you know, whatever happened to him afterwards. But, you know, he was a massive name. And, of course, he competed at London 2012 um, in the, uh, you know, for for South Africa in the Olympics and then came to the Paralympics as well. And I uh, I was in a stadium and saw him um, lose and win. Um, to to you know, lose to Johnny Peacock, but then win a, a, as well in a, in a later event. I mean, that was a, 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 you know a, a story that absolutely needed telling, and and Channel Four were were right behind that. And as I say, a couple of other mentions: the Royal Artillery Barracks, where the shooting was. I went to watch Danielle Brown win archery gold there, and that was incredible. I, that venue, they just did in Woolwich they'd just done it so well and it was a, a really nice to see these these amazing locations in London really sparkling with the sport and the Paralympic tennis at Eaton Manor where there is still tennis but it's now the hockey centre as well um, you know you're, you're absolutely right Michael the legacy I think and we'll talk about that now the legacy certainly from London 2012 has to be um, the, a big part of it is the success of the Paralympics and that has continued to develop. And when it get, takes a step back, which sometimes it does, everybody goes and turns around and says, well, look, this was what happened in 2012. It needs to get back to at least this level, if not even more. 
and and 2017 when the IPC World Championships were held in London, of course, as alongside the IAAF World Championships, we saw um, full arenas for morning yeah. and, and afternoon sessions, and and that was again just just a knock on effect from from the way London stages these events. And you know, I I cover quite a lot of, of grassroots sport, if you like, um, alongside things like. Great North Runs, London Marathons, World Series Triathlons, Ride London. And as well as the the elite events, as I say, I cover quite a lot of the grassroots bit, which is the, the mass participation. And when you, you interview people at the end of those events and you go up to people, they've just completed a triathlon in Leeds that the Brownleys might be doing in a couple of hours' time. And you, you say to them, well, you know, what got you here? What got you on that start line? They talk about Johnny Brownlee. They talk about Alistair Brownlee. They talk about Vicky Holland, London Marathon. What what got you on the start line? Why, why were you one of 55,000? doing the Great North Run today? Why did you want to run to South Shields? And they mention people like Mo Farah. They talk about David Weir. You know, you talk to cyclists, they, they, they mention names like Victoria Pendleton and Chris Hoy. And, and whenever you have a discussion about, about legacy, about London 2012 and what it did, all of those names that I've just mentioned brought people out to try sport and do sport and it's it's at those big mass participation events i think you know the people behind mo farah in the london marathon and the great north run the people behind the brownleys the people behind victoria pendleton chris hoy mark cavendish at, at the ride london event as well it's all those other people i think taking part in those big mass participation events that that you know started doing it got on their bike got their trainers out decided to jump in a lake on a Sunday morning because of the Olympics and because the Olympics and the Paralympics came to London. Yeah, and you can't imagine Park Run really happening before no. London 2012. And, Great and, example. And Great right. example. Yeah. Um, did it inspire a generation? I mean, officially, less people are now officially playing sport, according to the figures from the government, from Sport England, uh, Sport Scotland, etc., etc., less people are actually now playing sport than 2012. So that is uh, a disappointment when when you look at just stats. But then I, I kind of agree with what you've already said, which there's so many other ways of being active that, you know, maybe that's, you know, just done enough to, to, to get to the point where mm. it was worth it. You know, it cost nine billion pounds. A lot of money. It's, it's still costing us money. The, you know, the mayor of London at the time, Boris Johnson, did a deal with West Ham, who they pay £10 million a season to rent a stadium. Um, there's also the Orbit, which he put up, the, uh, uh, you know, which you know, he approved and wanted up there, that red thing. And it's a marvellous thing, and it's a great view of London. But you know, two years, three years after London 2012, they had to put a slide on it. Again, mm. it's brilliant. The slide is fantastic, and it's a great thing, but it was Seen losing your video. money. Yeah, it was losing money hand over fist. Whatever and, happened and was... to that Johnson character? Did did he go on and achieve anything at all after <laughs> after being mayor of London think, and the, the I Olympics? I think that's a that's a bigger question than anything. Oh. But Footy can is can he, ask. Is he, has he got a job now? <laughs> but I think they they are the question marks, and yep. we know doping. That, uh, doping. So many people are, are losing medals still um, and getting retested from that and when you 16, think we've got the commonwealth 69 athletes i think have lost medals i mean jeremy yeah. hunt said it was going to be the cleanest olympics ever which when you take that sentence in out of context is a pretty naive thing to say 
cleanest Olympics ever. But what I would say is they've caught more dopers than Athens and Beijing combined. They've still got, as we speak, two more years of retesting because there's a statute of limits of 10 years on retesting doping. So you could say that more medals have gone to the right people, we hope, at London 2012. Um, and therefore... I guess you could then make an argument it is the cleanest Olympics ever. But, you know, to be to be at nearly 60, 60 failed doping tests um, is obviously a, a concern, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Disappointing. And we know the Olympic Park is an amazing place and millions of people have gone and seen it. And we've talked about the sporting events that continue to be held there. Uh, but it does cost us money, but they're building more houses. There are schools on there. There's amazing transport links. But is it all worth it? I would sit here and say it has been worth it. But what I want Birmingham 2022 to learn from is because we've already talked about that in an anything but footy uh, edition before that it's going to cost us slightly more than it did for Glasgow and 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 I don't think in Glasgow we ever with the 2014 Commonwealth Games there wasn't um you know that much kind of fear that 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 places were going to end up empty um but in Birmingham they're having to make the Alexander Stadium um into a bigger stadium um they're having to in Perry Bar you know build an athletes village and then they need to make sure that those are given to people people who need the housing that's what we want to learn so when we do the olympics again for a fourth time we get it right we get it right that's what i would like yeah i i think um and i'm clearly biased why would i be co-hosting a a podcast called anything but footy and unashamed olympic and paralympic podcast if i wasn't an enthusiast of the olympics of the paralympic movement as well um i think that that the, the way the country was for for that period of time, and, and it wasn't just the 17 days of the Olympics and then the, the couple of weeks of the Paralympics, but the, the whole build-up that year, the little gap, obviously, between the Olympics and the Paralympics, the Diamond Jubilee and everything else. For that period of time, I think Great Britain felt like a decent place to be. It, it felt like a, a good nation to be a part of. Um, went on our summer holidays that year and, and people were talking about Great Britain in, in, in good glowing terms. I'm just back from a summer holiday this year and I'm sat with the barman at the all-inclusive and he just wants to talk about one word to me and that word is, is Brexit. Um, and I don't want to end um, too politically, um, but I just think I think you can't quite quantify in financial terms the feel-good factor that hosting an Olympics and a Paralympics had. We witnessed it in London. Uh, we witnessed it in Rio. I'm pretty sure that we'll both witness it again in Tokyo. And yes, there's a huge cost. Yes, you can make significant arguments that wouldn't that money be better spent on new roads, new railways, new hospitals, new schools, whatever. But sometimes, just sometimes, you need just to, to throw a party and let your hair down. And, and that's what we did in 2012. And I think... From that point of view, it was worthwhile. And people actually spoke on the tube as well. Um, games makers volunteering, the, you know, the, the legacy of that should not be underestimated as well. That has changed, um, I think, a lot of people's um, views and, and, and doing things for the society. Um, as you, you know, apart from what you've already said, that B word, um, I, you know, the games makers choir, for example, who are still performing and doing, uh, uh, you know, opening ceremonies uh, at the at the Hockey World Cup and all that. That that is legacy for me, uh, very much so. So, 
That is the first of our summer specials on anything but footy, the unashamedly Olympic and Paralympic sport-focused podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget, if we missed your special 2012 moment, then tell us at anything but F on Twitter or message us on Insta and Facebook. Uh, please download the podcast. Please tell people about it. Share the link. Um, please rate us on iTunes or your normal uh, podcast provider. Tell people about anything but footy as we build up for Tokyo 2020. And our second summer special will be looking ahead to Tokyo 2020. And we're looking forward uh, to doing that in the next couple of weeks. But as you can tell, for Michael and I, London 2012, will long live in the memory for us but as the then mayor of london a certain boris johnson said london has staged the most extraordinary event we can remember in our lifetimes and which we will remember for the rest of our lives Podcast Network. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279. Or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.